Good morning, everyone. Everyone still on the line? Yep. Okay. Good. Um, well, hello again to everyone on the call and in the room, and thank you again for joining us today for today's Blogger and Media Roundtable. Um, today we have with us Lieutenant General Mark Hurtling, Commander, U.S. Army Europe, and he is here to discuss and take your questions about how the U.S. Army foreign military presence in Europe has helped the U.S. prevail in current conflicts by helping European nations contribute to recent unexpected alliances and war fighting requirements. Um, before we open the floor for opening statements from General Hurtling, we have a few housekeeping items. Um, once the floor is open for questions, please state your name and your blog or organization affiliation clearly. Also, if you're not actively participating in the conversation, please keep your phone muted to eliminate any background noise. Uh, with that being said, Lieutenant General Hurtling, we open the floor to you for any opening statement. Sure, thank you. Hey, well, good morning, everybody, and it's, it's good to be with you this morning. Um, what I'm here in Washington for is a, a meeting with General Odierno and several other the commanders uh, as part of his annual three- and four-star meeting uh, from commanders all over the world, and it's also an opportunity uh, to roll right into our Association of the United States Army Conference, which begins on Sunday uh, with the Great Army 10-Miler. But every time uh, I come to D.C., I ask our team if they can set up some engagements with uh, both media and think tanks and perhaps uh, go to the Hill and talk to some folks just to inform them uh, the latest trends and what's going on in U.S. Army Europe, uh, which is an organization uh, of about 42,000 soldiers uh, stationed in several countries in Europe, uh, and they're, they're doing, in my view, excellent work in terms of continuing to do things that all soldiers do, which is uh, defend our country and, and fight on uh, battlefields, because there are soldiers that deploy out of Europe uh, to countries like Iraq and Afghanistan and Kosovo. And currently, of our 42,000 uh, assigned soldiers, we have approximately 10,000 uh, that are uh, currently forward deployed mostly to Afghanistan. About 9,000 of those are in Afghanistan, two combat brigades, an engineer brigade, and a couple of aviation units. But for the remainder of the forces in Europe, uh, they are doing several things. One of the things, one of the things they're doing, uh, which just started yesterday, was a full-spectrum training exercise uh, with the 173rd Airborne uh, brigade out of Vincenza, Italy, uh, training at Hohenfels and Grafenbeer, Germany, which is our, our training center and what we call our crown jewel. Um, that's a very unique training event because it is, first of all, full spectrum, but unlike some of the training event, the full spectrum events that have gone on at our training centers at, at uh, Fort Polk, the JRTC, and NTC at Fort Irwin, this one includes uh, nine different allied partners to include the first time ever that we've had a allied partner as the opposing force. Both Slovenia and Slovakia are reinforcing with uh, battalion-level forces our, our, uh, our opposing force. In addition to that, we have uh, 99 different observer controllers from a variety of other nations, and we're attempting to bring more and more uh, observers, training observers from other countries into this multinational training center so that we can train closer together because we have fought closely together over the last several years, and it's an opportunity to continue to help transform uh, some of our European partners. Uh, that, that exercise, by the way, is going on between uh, now and the, the 22nd of October, and it started yesterday with a, a mass airborne jump with U.S. and Polish paratroopers, about 1,400 of them exited aircraft yesterday. 
Um, beyond that, what U.S. Army Europe does is build partner capacity and conduct theater security cooperation with our allies in Europe. Uh, we have a total of 51 countries in our area of responsibility, and we, we partner pretty closely with about 45 of those. Uh, the other six, somebody might ask, well, what are the other six doing? Well, they're, they're from some of the smaller nations that, that really uh, are not that significant in terms of producing armed forces for contingency operations. And I use the example of the Vatican or, uh, or Monaco. Uh, those are ones that, that we don't necessarily partner all that closely with. Um, but again, to throw some additional numbers at everyone, last year we conducted over 8,000 uh, theater security cooperation events uh, with about 44 countries. Uh, we just recently completed a conference of European Army with, uh, with the chiefs of land forces of 38 different countries. Our chief of staff of the Army, General Odierno, came over for that, where we literally talked about transforming uh, all of our forces to approach the challenges in a post-ISAF environment uh, beyond 2014. That's a critical piece because someone once told me as a general, one of my main jobs was to master transitions. And as General Dempsey said the other day, we are at a strategic inflection point with our forces and the transition from, a, from an ISAF and a counterinsurgency uh, army and military to one of post-ISAF and full spectrum is a significant training opportunity uh, that we're sharing with our allied partners. So I guess I'll, I'll leave it there as my opening comments. Uh, I'm willing and prepared to talk just about anything, and if I'm not prepared to talk about it, I'll tell you that. Uh, so please, let's let's have some questions. Okay. Um, before we start our questions, is someone else joining on the line? Uh, yes, this is John Doyle, 4G War Blog. Sorry I'm late. Not a problem. Good morning, John. Um, okay, we will begin our questions with uh, Master Sergeant Samples. Did you have? A I don't question? have any questions this time, Ashley. Go ahead. Okay, thank you. Um, Ms. Walsh in the room, did you have a question? You know, one of the things that's uh, most in the news right now is the economy mm -hmm. and the budget crisis in Europe. How are you seeing the budget uh, situation in the European and NATO countries, yeah. uh, plus the United States, affecting what the, the work you're doing? Yeah, it, that's a good, great question, by the way, Mary, because what we're seeing is uh, various influences, depending on the country, of what the budget is doing specifically to the military. As you know, Secretary Gates last, uh, be right before he left office, made a comment to the NATO ministerials, which was pretty harsh. Uh, Secretary Panetta yesterday softened those remarks a little bit and said, hey, we, we understand because we're going through, through the same thing. Uh, there aren't many countries, in fact, I can't think of one, that actually meets the, the NATO requirement of 2% GDP contribution to um, uh, military budgets. But as I've talked with, with others about, that's one aspect that the politicians and the budgeteers have to address. From a military standpoint, in my working with uh, the allied armies, which is my job, uh, every single one of them that I've dealt with has been doing the very best they can to contribute to coalitions. Uh, I use the phrase, they're, they're all fighting above their weight class. Even small countries that have uh, budget contributions of less than 1% are, uh, and I'll give the example of Estonia, are doing some significant work in terms of contributing forces to our operations in Afghanistan and in other places. Um, 
there, there are the same kind of challenges in each one of those countries that we're seeing, and I think some of them are struggling with the balancing of uh, uh, budgetary contributions to what they want from a strategic aspect uh, their militaries to do. Uh, and we're helping with some of those things. I mean, I'm actually giving advice to some land force commanders in terms of how do you portray your situation with your ministers, uh, with your, your chiefs of defenses. So I, I'm not sure that answers your question very well, but I, would, I guess I would finalize the statement by just saying every single country that we're working with in terms of building alliances are having challenges with uh, budgets and getting as much as what they'd like to have within their militaries, as are we. So. Thank you. Um, Mr. Wakers, did you have a question? Yes. Um, General, in your opening statement, you uh, had mentioned uh, how the U.S. Army Europe has, has obviously have made uh, significant contributions to Afghanistan, uh, but now that a tentative drawdown at least has, has been announced, what exactly do you feel that your role is going to be there in, um, in the next couple of years? Or, um, do you expect that it will be reduced, or are you going to continue to provide support and, and personnel at the same levels as you have, say, in 2010, 2011? Uh, I, I'm a little bit confused with the question. You mean uh, providing personnel to Afghanistan, or? Yeah, because, uh, I mean, according to your, your fact sheet on your website, uh, in 2010, you, uh, there, were, there were probably about 18,000 uh, soldiers that, that came through there uh, that went to Afghanistan. Is that going to stay the same, or are those levels going to drop off as they draw down? No. Uh, I, again, I'm a little bit confused if you can clarify. Are you talking about U.S. soldiers or allied soldiers? U.S. soldiers. Yeah. Well, uh, right now we have about, as I said in the opening statements, about 11, between 10 and 11,000. But that's just uh, part of the deployment cycle, uh, what we call the R4Gen cycle, the Army Force Generation cycle of the United States Army. Uh, within the next two years, uh, we will spike, and I, I don't want to give too much information because it's classified, we will spike at a little bit more than 14 or 15,000 because of uh, various brigades going back, various units going back to Afghanistan. So that number will, will spike up a little bit, and then it will come back down. It really, the, the contributions we've made uh, to Afghanistan of forces out of Europe, uh, a forward deployed force deploying again, uh, has, has ranged anywhere between 10, 15, and 20 percent of our total force in Europe. Uh, I hope I didn't confuse you with those numbers. No, not but at all. It, really, it, it really just depends on which units the Army asks us to provide for the fight in either Iraq or Afghanistan or, uh, or Kosovo, too. Uh, that, that's the other part I'd like to include in there. Or, for that matter, any other contingency. I, I hope that answered your question. Yeah, oh, absolutely, yes. Okay. All right. Mr. Kissinger, did you have a question? I did. Thank you. Um, General, thank you for taking your time this morning to talk to us. Um, my, my question pleasure. concerns uh, Army families. Um, having been overseas before and then having unit members deployed to someplace else, there's always a challenge for families that are in a different country and now all of a sudden the, the spouse is deployed. Uh, what is U.S. Army Europe doing for the spouses and family members that are left behind? Boy, I, I got to tell you, thank you so much for asking that question. I have never been asked that question before, and I'm happy to answer it. Uh, again, with about 10,000 soldiers deployed, we have about 
I would guess, 7,000 spouses and, and multiple family members remaining in Europe. Uh, we do our very best uh, in a very challenging situation because, as you might imagine, for a spouse in Europe, you know, they, it's, it's difficult for them to turn to grandparents or, or aunts or uncles or baby, even sometimes babysitters to give them a little bit of relief uh, with their children while their, their, spouses, their spouse soldier is deployed. Uh, but I think we have, we have certainly bought into the Army Family Covenant in Europe. Uh, I would suggest to you that because our communities are usually very uh, closed in Europe and that many people live on the installations, the concerns, there's a feeling of additional family in the units. But uh, I'll just add a couple of other things. Uh, my wife, Sue, uh, the deputy commander's wife, uh, Nancy Boozer, and the sergeant major's wife, Marissa Capel, have recently started something called a community ride where they literally are going about once a week to different communities that have both deployed and non-deployed soldiers and, and trying to make a better connection with families and, and spouses just to see what their concerns are. We are also conduct, we used to conduct uh, with the spouses monthly VTCs to talk about issues and concerns and we, we quickly found out that in the age of uh, social media that VTCs weren't as popular as just generating a Facebook page. So we've now generated a senior spouse Facebook page in Europe and we're using that to connect and so far that's proven highly successful. Uh, but I got to tell you, I, I actually think, and, and I've been deployed all over the world, uh, I have deployed three times out of Europe to combat and my personal feeling is the sense of family for, for soldiers in Europe knowing that their families are taken care of back there is pretty significant. I mean, they, they really feel that they are a community within a community. And I'd even go one step further and say uh, in our Italian and Germany, Italian and German communities where most, most of our combat soldiers come from, there is some phenomenal links uh, between the local population, the host nation, uh, and our soldiers' families. Uh, my, my last deployment was in 2007 and 8 when I was the commander of 1st Armored Division out of Wiesbaden, Germany. And what I would suggest to you is the mayor of Wiesbaden, uh, Dr. Mueller, and the, the, the land managers of, of Hesse and Baden-Württemberg were phenomenal to our families, offering them free park uh, tickets and concerts and picnics and and there really is uh, an increasing closeness between the host nation and the families. But thanks for asking that question. I don't know if, if I've given you enough information on that. No, that's great. Thank you very much, and I appreciate hearing from the host nation. Yeah, I, I, gotta, I can't emphasize that enough. What we receive from the host nation is pretty significant. Uh, they really understand what our families are going through, and they watch over them quite well. Uh, it, it really is somewhat touching and emotional to see it. And, and plus, we get the advantage when, when our soldiers come home from deployments. You know, back in the States at Fort Bragg or Fort Campbell, you might have all the, the American families there welcome as they come in. You would not believe uh, the number of, of host nation families that also come to our welcome home ceremonies. And if I could, i, I just give you a, a vignette, too. Uh, we had a memorial service, oh, I guess it was about three weeks ago, for three of our soldiers uh, that were killed in an auto accident, believe it or not. And uh, this was in the town of, of Ansbach. 
And, you know, as a commander and you hear your soldiers are killed in an accident, you certainly become emotional about it and you say, hey, what happened? What went wrong? Well, as it turned out, this accident was actually, uh, well, I won't go into the details because of legalities, but it was not these soldiers' fault. Uh, they were not drinking. They were not uh, conducting, doing something they shouldn't have been doing. But, in fact, what they were doing was coming from the home uh, of a German national that they had befriended a few weeks before, uh, because they had helped him change the tire on the side of a road. And this family had become very close with these three young soldiers, these three 19-year-old soldiers, and had kind of taken them into their home. And what was fascinating about the memorial service, where there were about 1,000 U.S. soldiers, there was also probably about 200 Germans from the local community attending that service. And it was really quite an emotional and touching event. But it just shows the closeness between the communities and the soldiers and families that live there. Well, thank you very much, General. Um, Ms. Harris, did you have a question? Yes, I did. Uh, General Gail Harris from the Foreign Policy Association. And Hi, Gail. My thank you. Sir. Hello, and again, thank you for taking the time uh, to talk to us. My question is in the form of a concern, and it, it goes to what's going to happen in the post-ISAF period. As you're aware more than I am that after each major conflict winds down, World War II, Vietnam, Cold War, uh, the first Iraqi war, uh, we cut our budget, the defense budget gets cut. The concern that I have in light of our own domestic financial problems is I believe the cut should base, be based on smart decisions made by the warfighter and the best estimate you can give of what the post-ISAF threat will be, which I know is incredibly difficult. And my concern is that the military might be forced to make unwise cuts just because of the depth of the financial crisis. So I was wondering what your thoughts were along those lines. Yeah, interestingly enough, uh, Secretary Panetta uh, used those same words in a speech in Brussels yesterday about the cyclic nature of uh, the U.S. military after wars, of doing exactly what you suggest in terms of cutting forces and cutting budgets. But, you know, that's, I think that's actually uh, part of our history, and, and it's probably uh, it's a momentum that you can't eliminate. But, but I guess I'm, in my career in the military, I've seen uh, very smart people in both the policy realm and the budget realm and the military and, uh, and in the people who are developing strategy, and in fact, even our, our uh, members of, of Congress and the Senate. And I guess I'm very trusting that they, that they will make the right decisions. Uh, I'm convinced that, that when all the facts are put on the table and, and we determine, as you said, what are the natures of the threats, and they are certainly out there in a globalized world. In fact, uh, it, it's even more significant, I would suggest, than it was uh, in the Cold War, uh, the threat was relatively simple. Now you have transnational issues with drugs and people uh, uh, and criminal activity. You have things like cyber uh, events that are occurring. You have uh, rogue nations and rogue nation leaders uh, and c certain things that, that call, cause fault lines within the political environment that make this a completely dangerous world. And I'm convinced that in an in a increasingly globalized world, that uh, I think our smart decision makers will, will make the right, uh, they'll do the right analysis and make the right calls in terms of 
of what kind of military we need, but they'll also consider things like the budget situation and the strategy and the threat. So I know there's going to be a lot of debate in the next couple of months on all these things, but I believe that we've got some pretty smart people making those decisions, so I'm just hopeful that they make the right ones. Thank you. Mm -hmm. And Courtney, did you have a question? Yeah, I actually have two, if you don't mind. Sure. Um, first, um, well, from your opening statement, you said that there were more than 8,000 theater security cooperation yeah. events last year. That's calendar year 2010? Right. How does that compare to this year, and then can you give us sort of an idea of, of what? Yeah, yeah it, it will be about the same this year. Uh, because of budget considerations, we're seeing how do we do that smarter. And those exercises run anywhere from uh, literally – uh, small groups of soldiers training uh, all the way up to JTF headquarters training with us. Uh, we, we bring in, as I'll, I'll, I'll run the gamut for you. Uh, we, unlike most of our counterpart NCO academies, the sergeant schools in the United States, our NCO academy at Grafenbeer allows allied nations to send young sergeants. So we've had over the last couple of years about 900 sergeants, young leaders, from allied nations attend side by side with our soldiers, a phenomenal uh, security cooperation events because we learn from them and they learn from, from us. When you have a 21-year-old corporal sitting next to a kid from the Ukraine on one side and maybe somebody from Bulgaria or the UK on, on the other or someone from Israel in the classroom, they are not only learning the skills of leader development, they're also learning culture, which, as you know, Courtney, has been one of the things we sometimes aren't so good at, understanding other people's cultures. So that's a phenomenal event, but that's at the lowest possible level. We do exercises. Right now, uh, we've got our 2nd Cavalry Regiment that's planning to send a, he just talked to me this morning about planning to send a, a striker platoon to the Baltics to operate in an exercise with uh, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Denmark, and Sweden in just a couple of weeks, uh, an exercise called Sabre Strike. Uh, you know, when you can send our, our most technologically advanced piece of equipment, the striker, uh, to participate in something like that where the other forces are doing CPXs, and, and it's just a platoon. So I'm sending a bunch of diplomats and ACUs up to work with a Baltic nation. Uh, and, and then the third piece, uh, the, the higher level headquarters, we just came back uh, and I was out there visiting when they were doing this and it was fascinating. We, we conduct an exercise every six months called Bagram. Uh, in Poland, in Vengen, Poland. I'm sorry, yeah, Vengen, Poland, outside Warsaw. Um, and this is an exercise that actually prepares the Polish White Eagle Brigade to go to Afghanistan. But we control the exercise for them. We run the exercise for them with trainers, simulations, OCs, observer controllers, and some role players. In fact, we had some of our soldiers out there role playing uh, 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 Afghan countrymen. When I was out there, a quick vignette about that, as I'm being escorted around, being shown this exercise for 2,600 Polish soldiers who were about to leave, who are now in Afghanistan, but were about to leave back then when I was there. Uh, I'm going from place to place, and I, I'm talking to these Polish soldiers. I'm being escorted by uh, Lieutenant General Gołenko, who is the chief of the Polish Land Force, and he introduces me to the brigade commander the first time I ever met him. The brigade commander starts talking to me in perfect English. And I, his name was Peter Blauich, and I said, Peter, where, where did you learn your English? And he said, well, I'm a 1999 graduate of the Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs. 
I said, how can that be? And he says, well, you know, Poland sent me. I became, you know, a graduate, and we didn't have a very good Air Force at the time, so I went into the Army, and now I'm commanding a brigade. A guy like that, who is now currently a brigadier general at 39 years old, will probably be their chief of land forces in several <coughs> years, or very at least a high-ranking individual. And those are the kind of guys we're influencing with those kind of theater security cooperation events. Those are going on all the time. And I, I use the figure 8,000 because that's how we calculate it. We literally put it into a database and say, have you done an event with another country or a group of countries? And that's how many we did. And so despite despite the budget crisis in Europe, yeah. that, those numbers have, are relatively similar this they, year? They are right now, but but truthfully, Courtney, that, that concerns me a little bit uh, because we there are a series of funds that help those kind of exercises. And I won't bore you with the details because they all have very confusing terminology. 1206, 1202, FMF, those, I mean, that's what kind of goes into this. And, and what we're trying to do is be a little bit more efficient in terms of the use of those funds in several ways. Uh, we're, we're measuring the cost effectiveness of the event. We're trying to focus the funds on the, on the nations and the armies that need it the most. And we're also trying to go from bilateral relationships more to a multi, a multi, yeah, I guess you could call it multinational or regional role. This event I, I mentioned earlier, Saber Strike, is a perfect example of that. That used to be just a one-on-one -on -one with us in Estonia. And then they said, hey, let's bring Latvia and Lithuania into it. The exercise became so successful that now Denmark and Sweden and several others want to join in. So what we're doing is looking at the Baltic what we're calling the Nordic region, and trying to bring countries together to conduct these kind of exercises. That's what we're doing across the board. And, and so as you have these meetings with your, your counterparts and, and these exercises, can you just sort of give us an idea of, of how they're characterizing how the, the budget crisis could have a direct impact on the national security of, their, of the region and of their countries? Yeah, it's mostly in terms of equipment, truthfully. Uh, the, the major and I won't say this, this is generic across the board, but the majority of the partners that I'm talking to are, are saying they would like to modernize. Because frankly, over the last 10 years, they've been doing counterinsurgency operations, and then they've, been very, they've been doing very good at it. But that's usually an infantry battalion uh, or something like that. Uh, I, I was just talking, I won't say which nation it was, but he, this land force commander was telling me that his chief of defense has really the alternative of do, do I buy more rifles and radios and intelligence equipment for the Army or do I buy a couple of F-16s for the Air Force? And those are the kinds of things that they're weighing and that they frankly have to determine in terms of their new roles both within NATO, as NATO partners, as outside NATO for things like Article 5 responses and out-of-theater responses. Uh, what I'd say to you is it, it, it's interesting that of the, of the countries that participated in ISAF, a, an interesting statistic is that about 87% of the participating nations came from Europe. So these are our stronger alliances. So they have been spending in terms of personal capital and training capital uh, they've been spending money to get ready for those kinds of events in Afghanistan and Iraq. Now, as post-ISAF comes, they really have to look at, okay, what do we do next? Is it doctrine? Is it continued training? Is it modernization of equipment? It's really, there's some hard choices, just like we have. You know, it's just like what we have. I hope 
That answers it? Yeah. Okay. All right. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Doyle, did you have a question? Uh, yes, I did. Uh, General John Doyle, the 4G War Blog, thanks for making the time. Good uh, afternoon or evening over there. Um, okay. I'm kind of new to some of this Army stuff. Uh, and um, Yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> I've just been writing about uh, full-spectrum full combat aviation brigades, and now I'm hearing mm -hmm. it in terms of, of all U.S. forces in Europe. And I'm just wondering... As I understand it, full spectrum means literally handling the full spectrum of things that could be thrown at the Army uh, in any situation. And I'm just wondering how well can you prepare for that when it sounds like most of your exercises are with fairly small units. Uh, you just talked about a striker platoon. And I'm just wondering if, if full spectrum includes classic land warfare like pull the gap, uh, how do you how do you coordinate uh, moving vast numbers of people around if you're training on a micro level? Yeah, well, in some of those cases, it's not. Uh, in the thing, the exercise I mentioned with the striker platoon, what you're really talking about in that event is just sharing tactics and procedures between that platoon and, in, in this case, the Estonian and the Latvian units. Uh, so that's really at the, at the smaller end tactical level. Uh, the event that we have going on right now, which consists of about 9,000 soldiers from uh, from nine different countries, most of those U.S., uh, about 7,000 of them are, are U.S., uh, the scenario that's developed is, in fact, uh, it, it's not what one would say is conventional war. In fact, it's what we can best determine might be the war of the future. And, and what I would almost suggest as a model is, uh, is, is what the Israelis saw uh, in southern Lebanon and then the Gaza against Hezbollah and Hamas in 2006 and 2008. It is a war against a combined uh, uniformed and civilian threat using technologically advanced weaponry in very uh, challenging situations that require combined arms maneuver and wide area security. So what you have literally is, is um, across the spectrum in a war among the people, the requirement to execute operations against various threats. Now that, that sounds confusing as hell because it is. I mean, this really puts some challenges to a commander on the scene uh, who's running uh, an organization that is a uniformed military that has gained uh, tactical savvy doing coin operations over the last 10 years, has also gained some uh, improved in intelligence cap capability that we've gained over the last few years looking at networks and various kinds of threats in a new kind of environment. Um, you know, I had a I had a conversation with uh, a guy by the name of Major General Turgeman, who is the Iraqi Army commander, uh, a few months ago, and we we had a very strong bonding session because what his army went through in terms of moving from the Infantada that they had been fighting for 15 years to their actions against uh, Hezbollah and Hamas in 2006 and 8. Uh, is somewhat the same thing we're seeing the potential for with multiple threats throughout the world as we come out of a coin operation for the last 10 years and face other kinds of transnational threats. 
So, you know, the skill sets that soldiers need, the way we conduct joint and multinational uh, fights in these kinds of conflicts are, are something that we haven't really rehearsed, and, and we will need to do it on somewhat of a large scale. Uh, so that's, I know this is very confusing. Uh, if, I would invite you right now to come to Hohenfels and see it playing out on the ground, but I will tell you right now, the commander of that organization and I had a talk last week, and you know, this is a guy who's a Iraqi and Afghani vet of several deployments, and he was literally, well, let's just say he was nervous about what he was about to face and the scenario we painted for him that would be very challenging these next two weeks. Um, that's sort of the thing we're talking about, uh, and I hope that makes sense. So hope, they, I hope they, I'm not too obtuse in that. They, I thought I heard you say Major General Turgeman was Iraqi. He's yeah. Israeli. Oh, I'm sorry. Israeli. He's Israeli. If I said Iraqi, I, I made a mistake. Uh, well, you said he was going up against Hezbollah. Yeah, I, I'm sorry. Okay, then I did definitely make it. No, Major General Turgeman is, is the Israeli Army commander. I'm sorry. A quick follow-up. Um, just using uh, Israel as a model, um, Israeli operations don't uh, usually have the, the global scale that America is facing, and I'm just wondering mm -hmm. how well uh, you'll be able to translate that given all the different regional commands that uh, the military has around the world. No, that's a, that's a good point, and that's what drives uh, really our leader development training. Uh, as we're looking at this new campaign we're calling the Profession of Arms campaign, after we pull out of a counterinsurgency environment that, in fact, General Dempsey started when he was the chief of staff of the Army, and he's continuing now as the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, it requires us to train our leaders to be both adaptable and versatile. Now, now those are bumper sticker words unless you really understand what it means. Uh, an adaptable leader is an individual who can take any situation and quickly uh, conform his force to address the threats. A versatile leader is the kind of person who really understands that there's a lot of threats out there and that he can do many things uh, sequentially or simultaneously uh, to execute the mission. Those are two skill sets that we're going to require in our leaders in the future, and those are difficult ones to train, truthfully. Thank you, General. i got a million other questions, but uh, it's time to share with everybody else. Okay. Thank you very much. Ms. Walsh, did you have another question? Uh, could I take you uh, from the tactical up to the strategic for a second? And, oh, and that always makes me nervous. I'm okay. Right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, but, you know, Admiral Mullen uh, in his speech at West Point uh, famously said that he was afraid that um, that the American public were not connected mm. sufficiently with the military yeah. and that communication became a big <coughs> piece of it. How do you see uh, among the European nations, especially in the time of budget, crunch their connection with uh, their p publics and and who have to foot the bill for their operations and and how do you see the the digital age the communi instant communications affecting that Oof. I'm just your philosophical thoughts here you know yeah I mean I, I think many of our European allies see it the same way we do it's, it's, and most of the European armies have, have gone professional in the last couple of years. And what I mean by that is that there's, there are very few remaining conscript armies. Uh, and they've all found that, that that brings 
while it brings a more professional soldier and you can train them for longer and, and uh, get them into the profession of arms a little bit better than a conscript, at the same time it does sort of form a, a wedge between the warrior and the population they are, are declaring they will defend and support. It, it is a critical uh, philosophical challenge. Uh, it requires continuous engagements with the people you work with, much the reason I'm doing this today, I mean, to inform people exactly what you're doing and how you're doing it. But when you then take uh, the additional uh, uh, constraint of a country that may have a cultural background of, if not secrecy, if, if, if less transparency than we would like to believe that we have, and I'll use an example, uh, Bulgaria. Um, Kelly Schlosser and I were in Bulgaria a few weeks ago signing, I was signing a, a training uh, agreement with the Bulgarian Land Force Commander, Major General Stefan Vasilev. And afterwards, we wanted to do a press conference saying, hey, we had done this. You know, we're complete. We're going to have training events. We're working between the Bulgarians and, in some cases, Romanians, Croatians. He, his immediate reaction was, you want to do what? And we said, well, we want to have a press conference and announce this and kind of, you know, publicize this to the people that the Bulgarian army is moving forward and you're doing all these great things. He goes, well, I mean, his initial response was not real enthusiastic. Uh, but as we then conducted the signing ceremony and there were people there taking pictures and he went out to the microphone and he got, got a couple of softball questions, he, I, my take was that General Basilov really kind of liked it and said, hey. And we talked about it afterwards. And he, he said to me, this is not something we normally do. He says, but I now understand why it's important to let the people know what the Army's doing. So, I mean, this is a cultural shift uh, because many of the nations we're working with used to be Warsaw Pact countries. And dealing with the media was not something they did. Mm -hmm. uh, so, yeah, I, I, it, it's, a, it's a fascinating dynamic. And, and it just goes to show that in everything we do, regarding theater security cooperations, there are intended, intended consequences and unintended consequences that occur. So. Thank you. Mm -hmm. uh, Mr. Wakers, did you have a follow-up question? Yes, actually I do. Um, General, um, how do uh, the prospect of, uh, of budget cuts affect morale in, in soldiers in, in Europe and abroad today? Um, what, what do you say to soldiers who are concerned about the prospect of having less resources to work with? I tell them not to worry about it. I tell them that that's my job. And I'm being a little bit flip, but I'm serious. In fact, that question was asked to me the other day in a council of commanders. And what I told the commanders is, hey, I'll fight for the budget. You just train your forces. Uh, you know, there's, there's different things that we can do. And, and I see my primary job is getting the resources that, that our subordinate units need to do the job that they need. And if we don't get the resources, we adjust. But really, subordinate commanders to me, the brigade and, and command commanders, you know, the one- and two-star generals and the, and the colonels out there, all they really need to focus on, in my view, is taking what they have and getting the best training and professional development out of it as they possibly can. I know that, that probably doesn't satisfy you, but, but really – uh, that, that's kind of how I see my job as the user commander. Mr. Kissinger, do you have a follow-up question? I do. I have a softball one. 
Are you oh, running good. in the ten mile? Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's that's uh, you're gonna dime me out here. I I um I am not. I have very bad knees, and I'd bike the ten miles, but I am gonna support both my wife who is running and is gonna make me feel like an idiot, and uh, and all of the user soldiers that are running. But you know, I used to be a big runner and probably ran too much in my early days, and now I'm. I'm prone to that old man treadmill called the elliptical and, and bicycles out on the, the Neckar River. I understand completely after four knee surgeries, but I thought I had to ask. <laughs> okay. I can't believe you asked me that and embarrassed me in front of all these people. <laughs> Ms. Harris, did you have a follow-up question? No, but I wanted to do empathy with the general. I was in the military for 28 years, and now I've got bad knees, but I do bike. Well, hey, hey, okay, as long as you're going to give me that softball, let me do a segue. You know, one of the reasons uh, a few years ago we started looking at redesigning the Army Physical Readiness Training Program was for exactly this reason. Uh, we were having a lot of soldiers running long distances, and over, a, in my case, a 36-year career, uh, it tends to do things to your knees if you're not doing it properly or doing too much of it. It's an overuse injury. So um, th that was actually one of the reasons we looked at uh, doing a more healthy and more clinically and scientific scientific approach to what we were doing in physical readiness training, which I think has has pretty much been universally accepted now by most of the soldiers, and they see it as a good thing. I'm glad to hear that because when I was on active duty, I noticed people starting having knee problems in their late 20s and early 30s. I mean, they yeah. enjoy running, but like you said, uh, you had. I found uh, I had to go to every other day before I had to stop totally. Yeah, well, as long as we're doing a running clinic here, I, I mean, I, I, I seriously, I used to do, I used to do marathons and triathlons, and felt like I was a pretty good runner. And, and I tell you, when you start getting uh, in your more mature years, you realize that the, the marathon. And I hate, I know I'm going to get all kinds of reports from runners out there, but you know, I, I probably was stupid doing an event where the first person who ever did it died. When you think about that, you know. <laughs> That's true, and I have to tell you that uh, I've always given the Army and the Marine Corps kudos above all the services in terms of fitness, which, as you know, uh, if you don't do it right, it, weight challenges, they'll throw you out. But I thought the Army and the Marine Corps did it best that you guys uh, not only talked it, but you walked it. Yeah, yeah, well, we're trying to get back to that. Okay. Did you have a follow-up question? I'm, I'm going to be a killjoy here because oh, I like talking about sure. running. But okay. um, um, taking you back to sort of big-picture thinking, mm -hmm. uh, can you just sort of give us an idea of, of what you see right now as the threat, and I guess it would be primarily more Western Europe, of homegrown terrorism? Yeah. And and what your, again, your counterparts are telling you is how, how is that threat increasing, decreasing, staying stable? Are you talking homegrown terrorism or the lone actor I, I guess or it would all kind of, of the above? It would kind of be both, and then maybe the idea of sort of these sleeper cells. Yeah. It seems every so often there's a you know a cell that gets a, that's arrested in England or yeah. in Germany. Or you know, it, it's interesting you ask that, Courtney, because just before I flew home, uh, we had a a conference that I had asked for with multiple three-letter three-letter agencies mm -hmm. uh, to to address specifically the threat in Europe. And one of the things I was trying to do over the last 10 years as part of this turn to full spectrum operation, as we've been training as one of the, the, the 
listeners asked early on, how many tr forces are you training for Afghanistan and Iraq? I mean, we have really been focused the last 10 years in preparing brigades to go into harm's way. Mm -hmm. So as part of that, we've been training intelligence capability at the brigade level to address the threats in their areas when they deploy. Mm -hmm. Uh, with that, frankly, we, we got away from taking a, a hard look at the threats in Europe. So I asked our guys about six months ago uh, to, to bring the experts together and really do a holistic review of European threats. So we've had a series of conferences where they've back-briefed me on these things, and it's fascinating the, the exact one of the agencies that was at this conference the other day reminded me that most Americans think al-Qaeda means the base. Uh, what she then told me, and she was a very high-level official from one of our intelligence agencies here in Washington that had traveled to Europe, she said, you know, this base is something that is different than what we see it as in the mind of the extremist terrorist. It is something that they return to. So as there are peaks and valleys of, of terrorist activities, they can always go back and refresh themselves. I said, well, that's very interesting. And in fact, she gave me a much longer Arabic term of what uh, al-Qaeda translates into, because I always thought it just meant the base. Not so. Uh, and what she suggests was that even during periods of declining capability, if they live by the true philosophy of, of jihad, that there will be a time that they can take it back up. If you believe that, and she made a very forceful argument uh, to me on this, then we've had some successes over the last couple of years. So we might be in one of those sine wave troughs, but it could go back up. If you then further believe that, and one of the other things she told me was that as you look at all the countries where extremist activities have taken place, Pakistan, Iraq, Afghanistan, uh, Yemen, uh, she said, you know, in, in all of the areas which this has occurred, uh, those are, she, can, she, she, uh, she kind of correlated it to being rooms of a house. And she said, Europe is the hallway in that house. And as, as transitions go from one place to another, they're transferring through Europe. And she then made the presentation of what she was about to say. Uh, we've had an increase in drug trafficking and transnational terrorism transiting through USER and we tr and, uh, Europe, and we track that as w uh, within our military intelligence battalion. And we also work very closely with our European partners on this. That's the fascinating piece. Uh, some experts would say that many of them could not track these alone with our assistance. So I think we are paying a significant uh, contributory price of helping our, our uh, partners in Europe track the kind of transnational events that are associated with either running weapons, running drugs, running humans. In addition to that, uh, if you looked at some of the analysis that's, open, that's in open source resources today, you would find that there are there are much more drugs transiting the European continent than there are even in South America right now. Uh, all that will would contribute to narco terrorism and the effects of of um, potential uh, events. Add to that the fact that the Arab Spring is about to become the Arab Autumn, 
And what we have seen in that case is many more uh, immigrants into the European continent from key countries in the Middle East. And most of our European nations report that their percentage of uh, Islamic immigrants is between 7 and 10 percent. And certainly a portion of that could be uh, extreme. All of those things contribute to the fact that, that th there is the potential for increasing threats in the European environment. And we're working very closely with intelligence agencies, local uh, police departments, and security agencies on countering that. Unlike in a combat zone, we can't take direct action. But there is the passing of information and the potential for training with others to address those kind of security threats to every one of the 51 nations in front. A very long answer to your question. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> uh, and John Doyle, did you have a follow-up question? Uh, yes, I did. Um, to circle back to uh, everybody's knees, <laughs> I was just <laughs> at um, Fort, Fort Leavenworth last week and uh, turned out at ODARC 30 to, to watch the uh, recruits uh, do PT and was surprised to see uh, a company come in and then 14 members of the company were either on crutches or uh, wearing casts of one form or another. And uh, it was also explained to us that um, PT now, there's a lot of focus on building up uh, the recruits' uh, core uh, because America's youth is not as physically active as it used to be. So mm -hmm. I'm just wondering um, if um, basic combat training is focusing on bringing people, you know, up to – Enough from a, a you know a different era. Um, are are the troops getting enough training uh, throughout um, their time um, to uh, do the job they need to do? And you know we see constantly the extreme weather, the extreme conditions in places like Afghanistan. Um, is is I don't want to I don't want to make it a blanket uh, statement on American youth, but is there a problem here of getting enough physically fit people to do the jobs that have to be done, and how much training has to be devoted to it to get them up to the level you need? Yeah, and and what I would suggest to you, you're, you're going to have me channel my previous uh, job as the initial military training uh, deputy commanding general, because this was, in fact, uh, in my two years from 2009 to 2011 before I took command at USER, this was one of the biggest uh, challenges we addressed. And you said Fort Leavenworth, but I'm assuming you meant Fort Leonard Wood. I'm sorry, and Fort Leonard Wood. I was at both the same week. <laughs> yeah, and, and what I would suggest is you saw an example of exactly some of the things we were addressing. And in fact, <laughs> even uh, I was even honored to, to tell the First Lady about the effects of uh, obesity, uh, lack of physical activity in schools prior to joining the military, and some of the things that were affecting those we were recruiting to come into the military. And there's all kinds of stuff on the web on this if you want to Google that. But, but we, in fact, uh, completely revamped the entire physical readiness program. Uh, we also revamped uh, the, the, the nutrition program within basic training. And, in fact, in U.S. Army Europe, we're continuing that from the individual soldier level to the unit level in terms of trying to get better nutrition and better food in order to fuel the tactical athlete as opposed to just feeding soldiers. Uh, it's kind of a, a fascinating uh, scientific study on the youth of America 
the amount of injuries that we were seeing in basic training doing simple things, and the fact that we have a nation that for the most part uh, does not have physical education in, in elementary or high school and what it's doing to them as they get to the point of, of being uh, post-pubescent. Uh, yeah, that, that's something that we're addressing, and you probably did see quite a few people on crutches, but truthfully, we were monitoring that very closely, and what you, had pro what you would have seen had you been there two years ago is probably an exponentially greater number of people on crutches because we weren't paying attention to it, and we had a bunch of really hard drill sergeants who said, hey, we can take these guys and break them down so they can be in better shape. But in fact, what we were doing was, was taking these members of the millennial generation and breaking them down to the point of actually breaking them apart uh, with multiple stress fractures and, and, uh, and injuries. So we, we, we as an Army did take a more scientific approach to this starting about two years ago. And my replacement in, uh, in initial military training, uh, Major General Rich Longo, is continuing that trend as we develop, uh, uh, as we continue to, to expand and deploy the new physical readiness program to include new physical training tests. Um, is the same situation uh, true in, um, among our European allies, especially the yes. more prosperous countries? Yes, absolutely. In fact, in my discussions with several of the more prosperous land force commanders, they are seeing exactly the same thing as a direct result. Even though th there is more physical activity in, in, in nations in Europe, uh, there seems to be more outdoor activity. There is a tendency to trend toward computer games and, and higher technology as opposed to playing. And some of our Europeans don't understand it either, much like some of our older people here in the United States do. The, the, the uh, inclusion of fast foods into the European mar market is something that is unfortunate that we have uh, contributed to the scene in Europe uh, because mostly they eat pretty well. Uh, in most European countries, with the ex with the exception of where I live in Germany, where there's a lot of meat and sauces and and good canoodles, but uh, what I tell you is the the opening of a lot of fast food restaurants and uh, the obesity and overweight trend is beginning to now occur in Europe, just like it has in the United States. Thank you, General. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Um, unfortunately, that's all the time we have for questions. We now turn the floor back over to Lieutenant General Hurtling for any closing remarks, sir. Well, hey, I got to tell you, thank you all for some very good questions. This was this was very stimulating early on a Thursday morning, and I appreciate all the interest in in what we're doing, not only in Europe, but there were also some very good questions about uh, the U.S. Army and the military in general. So, thank you all for participating. And for those of you with bad news, hit a swimming pool for a change or something, okay? All right. Thank you all very much. Uh, thank you, sir. Um, before we end today, um, as General Hurtling mentioned earlier, um, we would like to invite those of you in the National Capital Region to join us next week for the um, annual United States Army AUSA meeting to learn more about what the Army is doing across the globe. If you are unable to attend, we invite you to visit www.army.mil slash professional to watch many of the panels, family forums, and press conference with our Army senior leaders live, or follow the hashtag on Twitter at hashtag AUSA2011 to get updates throughout the week. Um, thank you again, General Hurtling, and everyone for participating. And this ends our roundtable. Very nicely done. Thank you. Okay. Thanks very much. Boom.